Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? All right. If I haven't met you, my name is Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor. How many of you like to shop at Hobby Lobby? Raise your hand. Hobby Lobby? Somebody really likes to in the middle there. Hey, in, in 1985, a little story about Hobby Lobby. In 1985, the founder of Hobby Lobby brought his, uh, his children who were helping him uh, run it at the time and transitioning into a leadership role together. And he said, bad news, this is the worst year we've ever had. Hobby Lobby was founded and today is still alive and well, and it's in Oklahoma, and that's a big oil boom area, and the oil had dried up in 1985. And so throughout 18, 1985 and 1986, the family just had a series of meetings, and they said, we might not make it as a company. You know, they had historically been very generous, but they were pretty, pretty much a small operation at that point. And with open hands, they just said, hey, if we don't make it, we don't make it, but we're going to spend the next year praying. And we're not sure what business strategy will get us out of this slump. There's nothing earthly that we could do in our wisdom that, that makes sense. We'll work harder than we've ever worked, but we're going to pray harder than we've ever prayed. 1986, by the end of the fourth quarter, they had the most profitable, profitable year in their history. And they still, to this day, can't explain why? They grew from eight stores to many, many hundred stores. They're opening several hundred even this year in 2019 or 2020 in a world where, where brick and mortar stores are going away. They just keep getting blessed. <clears throat> what was interesting about Hobby Lobby is the founders were approached recently by some very wealthy CEOs who have started a movement to give at least 50% uh, of their wealth away. And it was an awkward discussion because they said, we've been doing that since we can remember. <laughs> that's like not a new thing for us. So sure, you can, you can have my signature on there, but that's just what we do. And it's actually quite a bit larger than that percentage. Don't you kind of wish that you would grow up to become the type of person that is so content in the good things that God has given you that generosity just flows through you? that you're not held captive by the stuff, the materialism of our life? Don't you just deep down know if you're a parent that your greatest hope is that someday your kids won't be owned by, by what they own, but they'll own their stuff, their stuff won't own them? We all find generosity, contentment, um, just this open-handed posture of meeting the needs of others, very attractive in other people, do we not? And we find the opposite to be very unattractive, greed and comparison and just unchecked ambition or needing more and more and more. We're kind of repelled by that. In this series, we've talked really not about giving. It's not a giving series per se. We've talked about receiving from God. We've talked about the idea that God himself is the most generous being that has ever existed. And we were asking the question all the while, how generous is God? Because you see, I think the default mode of the human heart is to say, he's generous, but I wish he was a little more generous. And why did she get that and I didn't get that? And what if there won't be enough? We started in, in the book of Genesis and we just noticed that God gives freely in creation. He gives us a calling. He gives us dignity. He makes us in his image. And even when we rebel, he doesn't take away the fact that we're made in his image. He doesn't remove the calling on our lives. It's going to be harder now, this side of the garden, this side of Eden. And this is one of the ways it's harder. Today, I'd like to talk about this idea that, that giving can be a grind. 
Anyone honest enough to relate to that at times? Have you ever given generously, but it's just been a grind for you? It's just been hard. That's, that's been me at times. It, it reminds me of an ongoing frustration I have in my life. I mean, you know, I think we all have a fear that if Google Earth is constantly taking pictures of us outside, there's probably one or two things that we've done outside in our life that, are, that would be embarrassing if Google Earth snapped that photo. Here's mine. It involves garden hoses, and it's happened multiple times. I've always bought the cheap garden hose. You know, it looks good on the shelf, but when you get that into action and in your backyard, and you're trying to make sure that that tree gets watered, and that hose has been sitting in a shed all winter, and you pull it out, and it's got like 10,000 kinks in it, at first, you're very reasonable about it, you know? You're pastoral. You're just kind of like opening it up. You're just threading that out. It's all right. This is a little frustrating. It's taking longer than I thought. My hands are getting kind of grimy, but I'm sure when I turn this on, it's just going to work. And then when you get it spread out across your lawn, you go, all right. And you know there's nothing wrong with the water pressure in your house, so this is just going to work because that's what hoses are supposed to do. They're supposed to get water from A to B, and so you turn it on. And you walk to the other end, and you wait. And you look down the line, and you wait. And then you give it kind of the very reasonable thrash. But within 30 to 60 seconds, a reasonable person can turn into an absolute maniac. I have had a tantrum with a garden hose of the likes that if Google Earth ever caught that on image and just threw that on the website, I don't think people would come to church. They'd be like, this guy's nuts. He, he like regularly is wrestling with the garden hose. Just get out of there. This happened again to me when I was emptying the baptism tank a few weeks ago. We, we're running the world's most kinked, messed up garden hose right out that door. And I'm in the middle of the parking lot and we share this building with some contractors and these guys are coming out for a smoke break and I'm just trying to get it. And then I just couldn't take it. I brought the scissors out and I just cut it off halfway. I'm literally destroying and defacing the church's property. I'm just losing my mind. Eventually, we did pump that baptism out, and the hose, I think, is going to be long enough to work in the future, but here's the point. Maybe you and I, who are made in God's image, are meant to mirror the joyful generosity of God, but maybe there's some things in our lives, just like some areas in a the garden hose in your, in your shed or your garage that make it extremely difficult for the good things, the blessings, the resources, the time, the energy, the money, the talents to flow to the place that they're supposed to flow. So I'd like to talk about this. Giving can be a grind. The Apostle Paul, in a letter that he wrote to a church in Corinth, really gives us some insight on this. If you're not a, a historian, Corinth was a, essentially Las Vegas turned up a little bit in the ancient world. It was a wild, wild place. If you like the Olympics, the Ismithian Games started in Corinth, the predecessor to the Olympics. They love sports. They love sex. They love flash and power and money and betting. And it was a wild place. And from that area, Paul had planted a church, several of them. And they were actually known for their generosity. Paul had, in his journeys, really went ahead and said, would you be willing to help out some, some br brothers and sisters, other Christ followers in other parts of this ancient world who really don't have enough? They're really struggling. And they said, absolutely, we're Corinth, man. We're gifted. We're going to take care of them. But Paul kind of knew that sometimes our, our best intentions don't line up with a joyful 
execution of our actions. So he writes ahead, and he just said, hey, remember that time you said you were going to totally come through in a clutch way and take care of your brothers and sisters in need? I'm sending someone to collect that, and I want to make sure this isn't super awkward. It's like Paul, as a good pastor, knows sometimes we, we are eager to give when pressured, when given a public opportunity to look good, when we guilt ourselves or somebody guilts us. But then when the time actually comes to do it, we don't really like to do it. And so the way that Paul addresses this group tenderly as a pastor really instructs my heart and all of our hearts. So let's jump to 2 Corinthians. Remember this, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I just want to read that bold part again. It's really the centerpiece of what we, we, we want to grow in here this morning. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Some translations will say in your mind, in your inner person. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, then he quotes Psalm 112, a wonderful psalm about the attributes of a generous, godly person. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. So he's, he's appealing to scripture. He's saying it's kind of like the person that God describes as truly joyful and generous. They freely scatter, just like God freely scatters, and their righteousness endures forever. Their character resounds throughout all eternity. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Do you, do you see what he's saying there? His logic is God's the one who supplies all this water to go through the garden hose. The water's not going to run out. It's really more of a question of the, of the hose doing the, the hose's job. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This is an interesting line of logic, too. Again, Paul is Jewish, and he's basically coming from a Jewish background saying, hey, remember that sacrificial system? That was how we sent thank you notes to God for life and, you know, everything we enjoy. We would sacrifice and make atonement for our sins, but also to say thank you. Now the sacrificial system, it's over because Christ came as the final sacrifice. Guess what? The new way we write a thank you note to God is to meet the needs of other people around us in need. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, so you're not merely helping people who need help, but it's also overflowing in an expression of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God. What does that mean? That means when we hear about Hobby Lobby, not only do I want to go shop at Hobby Lobby a little more, because they pay their people great hourly rate, great health insurance, they're solving world problems, and they've been generous from the beginning, but it also points me to God, so that every time I go in Hobby Lobby, I'm like, how generous must God be? For the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. So apparently when we obey and when we're generous and when we meet the needs of others, 
it's the best way we can point people to the living God. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Don't miss that last part. The source of generosity is grace. It's not our good work. God allows us to be that generous. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How cool is Paul? He, he's writing people who he secretly suspects might change their mind about giving a need that is needed to meet the poor, and he turns it into this huge chapter of praise that ends like a crescendo of music saying, what, this whole generosity thing, it's so amazing. Like, how good is God? The gift that he's given us to be generous like he is. Whoa, who would have thought of this? And we want to read just a little bit from Psalm 112, which he quoted, Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. This is God's word. The first thing I'd like us to notice, it's just a principle that comes out of his logic, is this. Giving is a grind when you have a scarcity mindset. Giving is a grind. It's not fun. It's actually quite miserable when you have a scarcity mindset. What is a scarcity mindset? A scarcity mindset is when I wake up in the morning and one of the first thoughts I have is, what if I don't have enough? What if I don't have enough food? What if I can't wear the clothes I want to wear? What if I can't afford this house that I want to live in? What if I can't afford my car payment? What if I won't be able to get out of debt? What if I won't be able to buy the thing that I've always secretly suspected would make me ultimately happy? What if I won't be able to send my kids to the college that they need to go to? What if, what if, what if, what if there won't be enough? Do you see why that's a mindset? The word scarcity is a thread that runs through everything, and it doesn't just apply to material goods. You can have a scarcity mindset about health. Some of you do, and you spend an inordinate amount of time on WebMD. Like your toe hurts, and all of a sudden you're like an hour deep into WebMD, and you're like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to amputate the leg. Right? <laughs> it's a scarcity mindset. It's this fear-based place. It's constantly conceding to a state of misery. And it's giving only when pressured to give. What's fascinating about this scripture that we're here in today in 2 Corinthians is we're not contrasting people who don't give generously to people who do give generously. Paul's foregone conclusion is actually not that they're going to not give. He knows that they will give because they promise to give. His main concern isn't to land the donation. His main concern is that they might give out of a, of a wrong attitude, a wrong mindset, a wrong motive, that they would only give under the pressure of guilt. Isn't that refreshing? Some of you have been hurt by expressions of Christianity that included pastors who flew around in planes and raised lots of money and were buying stuff they didn't need, and it was all about the ministry and making everything shinier, and it was very little or very rarely about the poor or meeting needs, and, and the congregations gave generously, but if they were honest with themselves, most of the people who gave generously did so because they were pressed to give. They were manipulated to give. They were pushed to give. Guilt is a powerful motivator. When I was in the Army, basic training, basic combat training was primarily about shame-based behavioral modification. You don't want to do that because then you wouldn't be honorable, right? 
thing I noticed about that is that's great for affecting very quick change. It's not so great for creating lasting change. God does not want to primarily use shame or guilt or even pressure or even comparison like God's generous. Why aren't you more generous like God? What he wants to do is invite us in to a joyful place of giving. Many of you have been very generous in your gifts to the church and to other organizations and to people in need for many, many years, but you're miserable while you do it. My prayer today is not to convince people who are not generous to start being generous. My prayer and my goal is to convince those of us who are generous now, but are miserable in our generosity, to start experiencing joy in the giving. How do we do that? We get the kinks out of the garden hose, I suppose is one to say, way to say it. And one way to do that is not to spaz out on the garden hose. It is to recognize this principle. Giving is a joy when you have an abundance mindset. Jesus in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel said things like, don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. Doesn't God take care of the birds in the air, the ravens? They, they don't seem to be worrying about storing up things so they, they can have more to eat. They don't have a Costco card, right? And don't worry about what you're going to wear. Look at the lilies of the field. And, and there's a part of us that wants to feel like we can push back on that and be like, Jesus, you're talking like a hippie, right? Like, don't worry, you know, there's enough. But this is the embodied son of God, God in the flesh, coming to share the wisdom of the tri-personal Godhead who created all things with us. So let's lean deeper into his words. What could possibly convince him to suggest that this is the posture we should take? An abundance mindset. You see, God in Christ had soaked himself in the Hebrew scriptures to such an extent that he knew God to be exceedingly generous. Another way to very practically say it is this. If I can say true to the following three statements, I will have effectively engaged in an abundance mindset. But if you say false to even one of them, it's going to be very difficult to have an abundance mindset. First statement, God has generously provided for me. Some of you want to say false. What about that time I didn't have enough? What about that time I lived on the streets? What about this time? that I went into the debt, and yet you're here. And what about that time you weren't even aware of how he generously provided for you? It just, it just happened. And what of all the good things that you for years have just shrugged your shoulders and said, what a fortunate coincidence in my life that actually was God working through other people, turning on the tap and letting the water of abundance flow into your lives. True or false, God has generously provided for me. True, he has. And sometimes, even when you don't feel like he has in retrospect, all of us must admit that feelings are important. They should be validated. But when they contradict facts, they should be submitted to. God has generously provided for me. Second statement that you get to say true or false to, God will generously provide for me. And this is one that Paul himself lives out. He's just literally made his life a garden hose, a channel of blessing to other people, 
when he's relying on other people's generosity, he's relying on the protection of God in a very dangerous ancient world as he preaches and proclaims a message that most people are hostile to. And it's like Paul is a walking, talking example of true, God will generously provide for me. True. He's fearless in that. Some of you, going back to the medical example, you've moved past this scarcity mindset when it comes to your own health by being brought to the end of yourself and saying, at this point, either God will provide for me medically through, through medicine, through a miracle, or eventually through the mansion he's prepared for me in advance of my own death, the, the house that he goes to prepare for me in heaven. One of those M's is going to provide, I don't know which, and I never would have gotten to the point where I'd be so trusting of my future provision until I got to the point where that's all I could trust in. True, God will generously provide for me. I have a lot of compassion for those of you who hear this and say, easy for you to say, Mike, maybe your finances are in better order than mine. Uh, that's probably the case for, for a lot of us, according to statistics, most of Americans are living in debt. Many are living paycheck to paycheck by God's grace and his grace alone. A colonel in the military told me to teach Financial Peace University, and the thing about teaching it over and over and over again, you feel like a hypocrite if you don't like do all the stuff it tells you to do. So we got out of debt, and we got that six-month emergency fund, and we lived within our means, and because of that, we have margin. And yet, we live in a very volatile world. You don't think all of this could be taken away from even the most secure of us like that? It's not like we just bury big piles of gold in our backyard. Our money lives on the internet in little numbers. Who's to say any of this is so secure? If you're trusting in all that, if you think long and hard about it, you'll start to feel very afraid and very insecure no matter how much you have. And yet, if I trust in the God who made everything, who sustains everything, and who is even now redeeming everything, including me, then I can say, true, he will generously provide for me. I don't know how, but he will. One commentator put it this way. It's kind of like if you looked at the Garden of Eden as a party, a dinner party. How weird would it be if you went to a party and the host appeared over-the-top generous? There was so much to eat and drink, and there's so many appetizers, and everything abounded in party favors. How weird would it be if you saw a group of people conspiring to hoard all of that stuff, saying, we might run out. So you go get all the apps, and you go get all the drinks, and you go get the party favors. I have scoped a place in the southwest corner. There's a locker, and, a, and actually, I got two. You fill those up. I don't care if other people go without. We need more. That'd be weird, right? You'd probably kick them out of the party. I guess another way to say it is, is the host generous? Is the host been generous, and will he be generous? If you can say true, he has and he will to those two things, abundance mindset flows. And thirdly, God designed me to generously and joyfully provide for others. If you can say true to that, abundance will flow. Did you see Paul's language in 2 Corinthians? He's like, he's going to take care of everything you need so that you can take care of other people's needs. It's almost like 
a teasing, flirtatious theological language. It's like, I dare you to try to get into this abundant mindset. I dare you to outgive God. I dare you to outtrust God. Because he has a way, every time I hold my hands open and he fills them up and I distribute outward generously of filling my hands back up, oftentimes with more than I can ever handle. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's a formula. This isn't a get-rich thing. Paul was a man of very, very, very few financial means, and he's writing this logic to us. And yet, if in 2,000 years you have the largest cathedral in Europe named after you, the city that's 20 minutes away from you named after you, and have written 70-some percent of a document that's changed Western civilization and beyond more than anything else has after you, I would say you probably made a big impact and you probably have outshone anyone else who had financial means. God wants to work through us, but he doesn't want to work through a garden hose with a bunch of reluctance and compulsion that only flows when you go, come on. But that only is possible with an abundance Mindset. At the end of the day, I, I think if we need to move from a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality, it only comes through prayer and surrender. I think that's kind of the answer. We just need to, I just need to say, God, I've got a lot of muscle memory in the tank of living with scarcity. Would you help me to start to live in a world where you are truly generous, where I just trust that you're generous, and I'm looking for opportunities to give to whatever you want to give, whatever you want to direct me to. And, and then we wait on the answer to that prayer, and we cooperate with the answer to that prayer. Thirdly, this is very important, especially for those of you who have not enjoyed this sermon so far because you got a little PTSD from churches and money. God does not want something... For, from you, my friends. He wants something for you. God does not want your money. How ridiculous that the God who fashioned the Himalayas with a touch, who made the depths of the ocean with a, with a whisper, wants your 401k. How ridiculous. What would he do with it? Why does he need it? Do you think God is interested in human currency? He doesn't want something from you. Of course, you know, theologically, God wants your worship and your allegiance because you were made to glorify him, yes. But he doesn't want to pry from your white-knuckled fingers a $20 bill. That's, that's some cheesy, misguided evangelist that you saw on a documentary uncovering greed or something. That's not God. How do I know this? Because it's embedded in the exegetical theme of the text. If exegetical uh, approach means to pull out the true meaning of what the author said in the Bible. Okay, so, so Paul is collecting money for poor people, not for himself. He's not trying to get something from the Corinthians. He's trying to give the Corinthians something, namely a deep sense of joy. He knows they're going to give either way, and it's not even giving to Paul. It's giving to these other Christians who are in desperate need. He's not in question. If he didn't really care for the Corinthians, he wouldn't take the time 
to pull out a parchment. Do you know how much parchment costs? I mean, you thought cardstock was expensive, right? You know, in the ancient world, he wouldn't take all that time to write this stuff out and to have somebody hoof it by foot and read it out loud. He's trying to make sure that when the collection comes, that they experience a surge of pleasure and joy, that sense that, oh, I was made to do this. I'm mimicking my dad in his joyful generosity. He wants something for them. He was collecting for other people, not himself. And really, this hit home for me the other day when I took my kids to Red Robin. I know you can say this, the thing that comes next. Yum, right? <laughs> Red Robin, home of the bottomless french fries, right? I've taken my kids there a few times, but here's the thing. They don't know that the french fries are bottomless. I've just held that little secret. And it's the perfect theological training ground, I tell you, because they love french fries, so it's just dad, Clark, Isaac, Adeline. And what's interesting about the Red Robin corporate approach is they put an inadequate amount of french fries on everyone's plate. Because, I mean, if you think about the math, if we're going to, Americans like french fries, and we're just going to let these things flow, we're not going to start by, like, filling up your plate too much. And they're banking, it's probably in the Midwest especially, on the fact that we're probably not going to ask for, like, a fourth helping of french fries, most of us, right? So we have the french fries, and I'll even admit, when I saw the french fries on my burger plate, I was like, wow, that's, that's a little, that's about 20% less than an adequate, goodly amount of fries. And then you could see it in my kids' faces, too. You know, the, their little kids' meals come, and they got those french fries. They're delicious steak fries, right? That's what they call them, steak fries. And before they really can dig into it, right at that moment where they're not too hot that they burn your mouth, but they're so good you can't stop eating them, I just do a little test. Hey, Clark, could, could I have a french fry? And he looks down. And it's like, he's smart enough because he's my oldest, like, oh, I think this is on the exam. <laughs> right? Like, he, he kind of he knows that it's not really about the French fries. He's looking at my plate. He's got, my dad's got more fries than me. Uh, I feel like I've seen this movie before. There is a right answer. And then but I, let, I just let him be silent in his salty logic as he's just sitting there. And then I move on to the next one, Isaac, who's just, I think, generous by nature and wiring. Sure, Dad, you can have it, but he's got a cold, and it's like, I don't want to. <laughs> and then I move on to Adeline, and the youngest, the only girl, and she just looks at me, and if there was in that sweet little three-year-old's face the ability to say something explicitly wrong, you know, like a swear word, she just looked at me like, what? <laughs> like, no. And, and she just like, her pudgy little hand just grabbed them and just squished them all in like a ball. <laughs> and just looked, and like you could tell it like hurt her palm. And she's just like, you can come and take my french fries over my dead little cute body, right? <laughs> well, why do I share all this stuff with you on french fries? I've shared this story before. I don't want their french fries. I don't need their french fries. I have the type of, type of financial margin in my life that I could just have enough french fries to like make a swimming pool in it and jump in if I guess I really wanted to do that. That'd be gross, but do you know what I mean? I could just really just be not classy and just have the waiter at Red Robin just keep bringing baskets of french fries and it wouldn't increase the bill because they have bottomless french fries, 
really the question of Red Robin's French fries has everything to do with me recognizing who owns the French fries. Let's take the metaphor a little further. Somebody in the congregation gave me a gift card to Red Robin for Pastor Appreciation Month in October with a nice little note. So I'm not even ironically paying for the French fries that I am now using as a theological litmus test for joyful generosity to my pudgy little children. Do you see the picture in all this, guys? You didn't buy the fries. And the thing about the fry giver is he's decided that there is a bottomless French fry policy, at least to those who understand the purpose of a French fry, who understand that there are some people who don't have any French fries, and that the greatest joy in life is not to give because someone pushed you, not to let those French fries go because somebody stronger than you pulled the fingers over the French fries and forced you to give. I didn't do that. I want nothing more for that little girl and those two little boys to be uh, the kind of men and women someday who are so quick to share their French fries. Are you? And when you do, are you joyful? I say this whenever we talk about giving, it always bothers the board. I'll say it again, not to disrespect the board, but because I think it, you need to hear it. Some of you need to hear it. If you have hangups with money in church, we don't want something from you. We want something for you. And we want that so bad that would you just consider for the next season giving very sacrificially and joyfully to a different church? You can still come here. You can still put your kids in ministries. The rest of us will pick up the tab. It's fine. We don't, it's not about this logo, this ego, this local church. It's about you and you're made in the image of God and God wants you to be joyfully generous. If not here, give somewhere. And for many of you who give faithfully to churches and organizations, might I just push you a little bit to, to look at the French fries that God gives you and listen to the Holy Spirit in the mundane moments in life. What if this week you set a dollar amount aside, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 40 or 50 or 100, you go get that cash, and you just keep that in your pocket this week, every day this week. And every day, at the beginning of the day, you say, God, if there is somebody in need, a real individual, a real person that I might meet face-to-face, -face, or even over Facebook, as long as they're not writing you a letter that you have an aunt that died in a different country or something like that, if there is someone who you want to direct this money to, would you give me eyes to see and ears to hear, and might I do it with joy and not with compulsion? There's some power in doing things like that because when we exercise disciplines like that, it's a funny thing that that dollar amount in your right pocket that you've consecrated to God's work starts to become less and less about you and it starts to, in your own mind, become more and more obviously owned by the one who owns all the French fries. It's my challenge to you. If you do take me up on that and you want to share a testimony with the church, uh, feel free to email us, call us, and we can talk about that. Let's pray. God, thank you for Mercy Road Church. Thank you for the fact that you have been so generous to this church because of you and your resources flowing through other people. We're debt-free. We pay all of our bills. We can afford to be generous with those in need. But Lord, it's not about raising funds. For me, God, I just 
I pray that this church would grow in spiritual maturity so that all of us, every single one of us, would be generous and yet generously joyful. For those of us, and I include myself, God, at previous times in my life who, who have been generous, but we've been generous only because people have pushed us or we felt pressure or guilt or shame and it's been miserable, would you remove that misery today? Would you lead us into mimicking our Heavenly Father in being joyfully generous for your sake and for your purposes? We pray this in Jesus' name. Church family, let's stand in response to that word. Cast our minds to the greatest, most generous gift.